We'll open your scriptures today to First Peter. Uh, we're going to be looking for a second week at the verses running from chapter 1, verse 22, into the second chapter, verse 3. Verses that have to do with the power of the Word of God. So First Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all the malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you are God who has spoken and that you've through the working of your Spirit, made available to us what you've said. And not only do we have what you've said in front of us, but your Holy Spirit continues to carry out an illuminating ministry to make it clear to us what it is you've said and what it means. And so, Lord, would you do that this day? Would you work in this time, teaching us, planting your word in us, helping it to be clear to us those things that are in line with what you've said? And those things that are not. O Lord, as we saw in Exodus, teach us your ways. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, these verses, starting in verse 22 of the first chapter, are focused, if you're looking for a particular thread through them, on the central role that the Word of God plays in our lives. Last time we were looking at verses 22 to 25, and what was being underscored for us is that the central role that is played by the Word of God in our salvation is tied to the fact that it is the Word of God that plants the imperishable seed that led to new birth in our life. The Word of God is crucial. We were born again by a Word-planted imperishable seed. When we repented and believed in the Gospel, we were then born again. Being born again changed us at the very core of our being. 2 Corinthians 5.17 put it, uh, when we become a Christian, we become a new creation. God has done something fundamental. This new birth that occurs, this fundamental change at the deepest core of who we are, happened because God, using his word, planted what he told us was an imperishable seed, a spora in the Greek, within us. And therefore, this biblical analogy to be developed for us is to help us understand that rebirth, new birth, is like a seed being planted and sprouting in the ground. God came up with that image, not us. God was helping us to see the essence of what's happening in the born-again experience. I said, therefore, it's proper for us to think about a true believer, somebody that's turned to Christ as being like a sprouted seed. Uh, and there was even a time when I would just sort of kiddingly talk to the talk to a new believer about being the sprout, you know, 
your sprout. You know, God's planted a seed, it's, it's, it's now sprouted. And this seed, this spora of God, as we saw, uh, it not only sprouts, but it tells us here that this sprouting seed is imperishable. Think of a regular seed, once it's sprouted, we talked about this last time, the seed can't unsprout. I mean, you can't stuff it back inside the seed casing. It's sprouted. There's things you can do to affect how much fruit comes out of it, but you can't change the fact it's sprouted. And God says that's the image. Our new birth is a sprouted seed. The Word of God is planted in us, and it is a seed of change that is imperishable. It won't unsprout. It stays sprouted. And the way that that seed got planted in us, as I've said, is that God took his word and planted it in us. We were born again, as it put it, through the living and abiding word of God. Bottom line, no one has ever been saved and no one ever will be saved apart from hearing the word of God. The Word of God is the operative mechanism. It's not that somebody is saved because they heard an interesting talk, unless the talk incorporated the Word of God. It's the Word of God that plants it in us. You may have heard the Word in a meeting. You may have heard the Word in some literature that you read that clarified the Scripture verses. Or... In your own reading of the Bible, you may have come across what spoke to you about the gospel and what Jesus Christ had done for us. Whatever form it took, it was the word that planted the seed that sprouted in new birth an imperishable speed. You follow follow that picture as it's developing. God says, I want you to understand this. And I want you to understand the central role that the word of God plays in salvation. It's indispensable. All men's words, all men's ideas, even well-intended ideas and words, simply fade away like grass. That's the image being used for us. He says, none of that lasts. The only thing that lasts is the Word of God, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It will always be true. Eternal certainty in life rests on an eternal Word. I'd say... The Word of God is pretty central. It has to be. People, sadly, in our contemporary culture have talked about, well, we need to kind of modify the Word a bit. Some people find this offensive. Uh, We don't want anything to block anybody from the Lord. Hey, brothers and sisters, nobody ever finds the Lord except for the Word. (laughs) If you want to block them from the Word, don't tell them the Word. I mean, if you want to block them from the Lord, don't tell them the Word. It's that simple. Well, today, starting in the second chapter, still part of the same unfolding idea here, we examine another of these central roles of the Word of God. The Word of God not only saves us and gives us new birth, central to God's work to accomplish that outcome, but it's also the key to our spiritual growth once redeemed. In fact, just as in salvation... The Word of God plays an indispensable role in our growth. There's no true spiritual growth apart from the Word of God. Now, that's not the only part of the equation. 
Because we can be hearing the Word of God and refusing to obey. We can be hearing the Word of God taught and be resisting surrender to the Lord, uh, enabling by His Spirit. So certainly there's other dynamics in it. But brothers and sisters, what he's telling us is that there is no way for a person to grow, truly grow spiritually, apart from the Word of God being worked in their lives. In the same way, it's absolutely impossible for an individual to be saved no matter how motivated they may be, no matter how much of an emotional experience they may have had. It's impossible for them to be saved apart from the truth of the Word of God having been shared and planted. So also, it's impossible to truly grow spiritually unless the Word of God is part of that equation. It has to be. It's that central. It is the power of the Word. Now, given the importance of the Word, and obviously that's the theme here, uh, given the importance of the Word of God for both salvation and growth, doesn't it make perfect sense that the enemy of our souls, Satan, would be working overtime always to attack the truthfulness and the importance of the Word of God? He understands no one's saved without it, And he understands no one grows without it. And if his goal is to keep you from being saved, or if he can't prevent that, to keep you from growing, then part of the strategy to achieve that is keep the word of God away from people. And so he works constantly to keep the word of God out of our lives. Discourages any kind of private devotions, any kind of private study of God's word. He works constantly and subtly to keep the Word of God out of the churches so that there's no exposition of the Word of God going on. There might be well-intended talks going on, but there's no exposition of the Scriptures. The only power is the Word, you see. Now, we could have powerful speakers, but that power is not enough to change anybody. It's not enough to save anybody, and it's not enough to change them and help them grow, no matter how powerful a speaker they are. People might be moved emotionally in some way, but that doesn't fundamentally save or grow people. The Word of God, living an active, sharpening a two-edged sword, does. And therefore, Satan works. He's been working since Genesis chapter 3, you remember, trying to tempt Adam and Eve, and then later on all of humanity to believe, has God really said, to try to get them to doubt that God had actually spoken? And ever since Genesis 3, he's been working in the same way to say, well, he said that, but he didn't really mean that. Remember, that was also the essence of the Genesis 3 temptation of Adam and Eve. He hasn't said it, or if he did say it, he didn't really mean it. If you want captured in a nutshell the essence of the message of the vast majority of what calls itself Christendom, there it is. Whatever that Bible is, it's not that God said it. And if God did say it, and you find something offensive in it, he didn't mean it. You go look for yourself. (laughs) You'll discover that that, in fact, is the reality. He's been tragically effective at every era of history, certainly tragically effective in our era of history as well. Well, let's move on and look at this second chapter. He says, So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He begins 
this portion, as he's starting to turn attention to the issue of the Word of God in our growth, spiritual growth, he says, understand that you can undercut the value of the Word of God. The Word of God's indispensable for your growth, but you can undercut its value in your life by lifestyle choices you're making. The Word of God is crucial to our growth, but it's not the only variable in our growth. We've talked already about the fact, well, surrender and obedience, being doers, not merely hearers of the Word, all of that comes into play. Certainly the indwelling and enabling Holy Spirit plays a role in our spiritual growth as well. But the choices we make about our behaviors also play a role, and we can negate the benefit of the Word by choices we make and how we live. And he uses the example of this, uh, not by just talking about sin in general, but by talking about a particular sin, a particular type of sin. And it has to do uh, with sin that shows up in the nature of the body life of a group of people, that shows up in their interpersonal relationships. The whole section began back in the first chapter in verse 22 by saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. God has already identified that relationships in the church are crucially important. He wants us to be involved relationally in a loving way, showing both affection and selflessness, the two Greek words phileo and agape, which are used in verse 22 of the first chapter. That's been a particular theme he's been addressing. And so he comes back to that and he says, well, I could be talking about a lot of different types of sin that could obstruct your growth and undercut the benefit of being around the Word. But let's pick up on the theme that's already started. There are certain sins that show up within the context of the body, where instead of affection and selflessness, the church is characterized by accusation and attack. You say, oh gosh, you mean churches can be that way? Uh, Yeah, yeah, they can be. Uh, They can be pretty brutal places to be, quite frankly. Galatians chapter 5, in talking about the sins of the flesh, and challenging it, in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he says that, God says that believers can end up, and he uses this phrase, end up biting and devouring one another. And I think, so if you want to have a picture of how God sees it, and the potential there is for redeemed people to butcher one another, God warns us this can happen. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be 74 in another week. I've seen vastly more examples of biting and devouring one another as I've been drawn into lots of places over these many years of ministry. I didn't want to see any of them. I've seen vastly more than I want to see. God says, listen, that's not how he wants the church. They'll know you're you're my disciples by your love. Well, yeah, but not much of that knowing going on, you know. Uh, maybe that's part of the reason why much of the church today isn't involved in relationships. It's all just peripheral, you know, going to be entertained and not really getting to know one another. Because if you don't get too close, it's harder to get bit and devoured, you know. But God says, that's not a good option. I want, I want the relationships to be real in the churches. I want them to be close. I want them to be growing and loving and affectionate. And so he identifies for us here five sinful responses, particularly related 
to body life that contrast with affection and selflessness that he began with back in verse 22 to help drive the point home. And by the way, the principle, again, using this image of birth and eating and so forth, you know, a person can go to great lengths to try to eat right and then have practices in their life that undercut it. Uh, so that while the practices are ultimately unhealthy for them, but they don't change the practices, they just try to compensate by eating healthy. God says that can happen spiritually. People can get around some healthy spiritual food of the Word, but they have practices that (laughs) negate the health benefits, so to speak, spiritually in their life. Well, these are those types of practices. He says five things. Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all slander. He says, first of all, in the setting of your relationships with the brothers and sisters, get rid of all malice. What's that mean? It means get rid of wishing evil and hurt and problems on other people. Malice, at its very heart, is defined as the desire to get even. God says, listen... You're going to be in any church family, and people aren't always going to treat you well. And in that setting, he says, you can make a decision to try to get even, or you can make a decision to show phileo and agape. But if you make a decision to try to get even, it's going to have consequences. So he says, get rid of that option instead of the affection And the selflessness, get rid of this malice option. And he says, get rid of all deceit. By the way, this is the right translation, because in each case he says all of it. It's not like, well, I'm feeling pretty good, I got rid of most of the malice. (laughs) No, it's like an all or nothing deal. You get rid of all of that stuff, or it ends up coming back to haunt you. He says, get rid of all deceit. Deceit here translates a Greek word, meaning lying in all of its forms. Doing those things that purposely mislead other people, misrepresent what's going on. Such things destroy the openness of a body. They destroy the trust levels of a body. By the way, if I've been facing some things in my life, and it's been one of these weeks where you've been needing the Lord's grace, and somebody comes in, how's it going? And I say, oh, it's going fine. I've lied, I've practiced a deceit within the body. It's that simple, that straightforward. There's no place for it. Now, there might not be a context for me to go into all the details, but at the very least, I need to say to someone, hey, I'm glad you asked. It's been a particularly rough week. No time to go into all this, but would you pray a special way for me this week and this week ahead? Do you follow? He says, get rid of all deceit. There's no place for it. There's no place for it. It'll destroy openness, true openness. And worse, it'll have the effect of the third issue, getting rid of all deceit and all hypocrisy. It'll have the effect of fostering hypocrisy within the context of the church. A church is not helped by hypocrisy, having the form without the reality. Jesus talks about such hypocrisy as the yeast of the Pharisees in the Gospels. He says, this is dangerous stuff. It ruins the whole loaf, he says. a focus on externalism, not the internals, trying to be like you're expected to be. 
Sort of like, well, if you're going to be part of our church when you're here, you're supposed to be all smiles. You're supposed to be all, everything's great. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, be real. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Some churches, it's, I'm, I'm not naming any, but the fact of the matter is, there's no real place to weep. You know, it's, there's no real place to say, yeah, I've been a rough week. Because that kind of undercuts the message that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be hunky-dory, you know. And so we don't want that message being communicated. And God says, no, following Jesus, we find he never, never leaves us or forsakes us. We find his grace is sufficient to all needs. But it's going to have a lot of times when there's grace demonstrated in trials and hard times and disappointments. And he says, get rid of the hypocrisy. And he says, get rid of envy. Hard to have affection and selflessness in a group of people if you're struggling with envy. Envy is essentially bitterness, resentment, instead of rejoicing over the success of other people. It's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep if you ended up weeping over the things that cause other people to rejoice and then rejoice if they're not happening to them. You follow the contrast there? And then he says, listen, this is not what I want to see happen. And he says, especially, I don't want, I want you to get rid of all slander, verbal attack, tearing other people down through the things that we say. He says, get rid of all of that stuff. And I think you almost see the contrast developing here. He says, listen, I've, I've called for you to be a place, and as you're growing in me as redeemed people, that are, that's characterized by phileo, selfless, I mean, affection, and agape, selflessness. I don't want this to be a place marked by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Make it real. And if you don't deal with that right, then even if you happen to be around teaching, you're going to undercut its effectiveness in your life. And brothers and sisters, let me say, if you're not even around teaching, can you see the hopelessness of it all? Because these very things he's forbidding tend to be the marked characteristics. And if you're not around any teaching, then you're in real trouble then. Because what you're left with is just emptiness and pretense. Well, let's get back. He says, verse 2, Let's go on to the growth issue here. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the key growth requirement. We're to long for a diet of the Word of God in our daily life in church. King James Version and New American Standard Version translates this, the pure milk of the word. Better translation, really, because in the Greek, uh, the word is the understood focus, the understood noun, drive, going through all of these verses. Uh, otherwise, you, as the ESV translates, you could be wondering, well, what milk are they talking about? It's the, it's the word that they're talking about. Uh, God says, listen, I want you to long for the truth of my word. Instead of longing for human ideas and solutions. Epipotheo is the word translated long, which means appetite, craving, intense sorts of craving, intense sorts of desire. So here's a question for you. How's your appetite for the word? How's your appetite for the word? Because that's what he's talking about. 
God goes to great lengths here and other places to underscore for us that he wants us to have an appetite for the scriptures. To understand it's feeding on the scriptures that is central to us. Notice how he puts it in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Talking about God's dealings with Israel. And he says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, then listen to this, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's where you find the words that came from the mouth of God. You don't find it off in some quiet, secluded spot where you hear something in the air or, you know, echoing in your brain. This is the word of God. And God says, listen, you live by every word I've said. So that better be what you're eating. I used the manna as a physical manifestation in the Old Testament to kind of drive that point home. You eat the manna, eat my word. Feed on my word. Now he picks up on a very similar image. And he says, listen, like a newborn infant, long for my word. Long for it. Like the newborn infant craves the mother's milk. Do you long for the word like a newborn babe? Uh, He gives us that image because almost everyone has seen a hungry baby. And there's no question what they want. They don't want a long teaching time from me. You know, they don't, they're not looking to me for counsel. They're looking for the milk. They want, they want fed. I think that's a great image God's given us here. And he gave it to us, by the way. We didn't come up with it. He says, here, understand, this is how I want the Christian to be. I want you to be like that baby. Do you long for my word the way the baby longs for the milk? And God says, I'm giving you that image because the fact of the matter is, such intense craving is natural for the newborn child. I designed it that way. That's part of their protection. In fact, so much so that it's actually not natural, unnatural. If you have a baby who's not hungry, it's not natural. In fact, Those in the medical profession know when you don't see any hunger, that's one of the signs there's some other problems. When the hunger's gone, we got problems. We got problems. God says, I want that same reality, which is inescapable. You don't have to see, you don't have to be a medical person to understand it. I want you to understand that's how my word works. With a new birth in our lives, we are newborns spiritually. And we, in God's great intention, should be longing to drink the milk of the Word of God. And if we're not, it is not natural. Let me underscore it. If we're not, it is not natural. And just like with the baby, no hunger in the redeemed believer has to point to the fact that there's something seriously wrong in the believer's life. I don't have to psych you up to have a hunger for the Word of God. It naturally will be there when things are right between you and God. 
When they're not, it wouldn't matter how much psyching I did. That's the picture. God says, listen, I want this to be true of your life. And he says, I want it to be true of your life for this reason. Long for that pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into or in your salvation. God says, you only grow up in it. What's the it? The word. That's how you grow. As we said, it's not the only, only variable in growth, but nobody grows without that variable. In other words, you've got to have the word. And he says, I want you to grow up because of that. The word translates a Greek word. It simply means mature, turn into adults, you know, get strong. He says, I want this to be true. In order to grow spiritually, we have to choose to feed on the Word of God. There's no substitute diet. I mean, there's not like another alternative. God says, well, i got this group over here. They don't like to be in my Word, so I've got this other solution. And God says, there's no other solution. <laughs> this is. It's not like people saying, well, here's the Gospel. We can't be saved apart from the Gospel. They say, well, I don't like that Gospel. God says, well, just for you, I've got this other answer. There is no other answer. The gospel is the only answer. The word is the only answer in growth. If it is what helps us grow, then reject any justification or temptation to justify being away from it. There's never a time when it's good for you to fast from the word. But I've known people in honesty, as they share with me, who ended up fasting for years from the word as redeemed believers. So there's never any time to fast. There's never any time to look for some fast food substitute, you know, for the Word. Well, it's not really the Word, but they're sort of like biblical ideas. Not the same thing, all right? It's not the same thing. He says, reject any temptation you may feel to replace the Word with something else. I was thinking of this in relationship to 2 Timothy 4.3, what I call the itchy ears syndrome. He says, for the time's coming when people won't endure sound teaching from God's word, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. Why? Because when you talk about the truth, it's not always comfortable. Remember, teach me your ways? Uh, sometimes God's ways smack us right in the face. My ways are absolutely contrary to what you just said, God. Well, that's kind of offensive. Well, it's meant to be. God loves us enough to be offensive to us. He says, listen, get your act together. You're going in a way that leads to ill health, spiritually, disaster. Get right. Don't come back and say, oh, well, I'm sorry God offended you here. But he really cares about you. So if this part offends you, just don't worry about it. Maybe another... What kind of, kind of foolishness is that? And yet that constitutes and goes for teaching in many places. Itchy ear syndromes. Or I always think of Isaiah chapter 30, uh, another syndrome of the smooth things, the illusions. Listen to this, verses 8 to 11. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to listen and hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, don't see, 
and to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what's right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. You know, leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about this Holy One of Israel. Brothers and sisters, this didn't just happen in Isaiah chapter 30 in Israel. It is a besetting problem. People say, well, I came to be blessed, not confronted. Well, I can give you a whole list of places you can go and maybe feel blessed. But the Word of God doesn't promise to bless you. Sometimes it cuts you like a sword. Sometimes it teaches. Sometimes it reproves. Sometimes it corrects. Sometimes it trains. Hey, that's just what it does. Uh, He says, so reject the temptation to replace the Word with something else, the itching ear thing, the smooth illusion. He says, eat the right stuff. It's only the Word that will help you grow. And he ends up with a motivation here. He says, uh, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now this is a crushing final statement. He says, I want you to do all of this. I want you to be growing, getting into my word, letting it do all of this stuff. If you found that my word was good. We choose to feed upon God's word as a lifestyle Because we've already tasted some of it and found it to be good. You and I drank from the scripture as we learned the gospel. We didn't learn it any other way. The word of God is the gospel, has the gospel in it. That's where we found about our problem of sin and God's great solution in Christ. We already tasted that. And if we've become born again people, we have the proof positive to us that, yeah, it was good. I tasted of that. It was good. It was good. And so God says, if indeed you've already tasted the word and found it was good, we should expect the rest of God's word to taste good too. She said, well, you know, when I first heard the gospel, I felt convicted. It was an uncomfortable thing. Gosh, maybe I even had tears as I responded. You know, It was a tough thing, but over time I saw this was a good thing. Same is going to be true. Sometimes you're listening as a redeemed child of God, and man, the word's kind of rough. I got some tears with this, got some struggle with this, got to work it through, but over time it proves good. Think of Psalm 34, 8, and we'll end with this. The challenge is taste and see that the Lord is good. And the only way you're going to be able to taste to see that the Lord is good is to taste the word he gave us to eat. That's how you taste it. Well, the word of God is central to us. Come on up. Uh, The word of God is central to us because it's indispensable to salvation. And it's central to us because it's by it that we grow. Let's not diminish the centrality of what God's made so plain to us needs to be central, which is the Word of God. In our evangelism messages, whether here or in Africa, and in our teaching and growing messages here or in Africa, make them biblical. Make them biblical. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can be your children through the cross. 
Thank you that we can grow through your word. Be with us in this day and in this week ahead, that we might be a growing people. Well, thank you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.